Well, good evening, everybody. Isn't it a good thing to be together? If you have your Bible, Revelation 17, where we were this morning, we're going to pick up right there. We're talking tonight about some scattered issues, but we're going to start with one that is at the tail end of our conversation this morning. Let me read the scripture and then we'll pray and get started. We're going to read the first six verses like we did this morning. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and, and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, Jesus. Pray with me, won't you? And now, gracious Jesus, we thank you for allowing us the privilege of studying your word once again. Would you use this time, Lord, to encourage and strengthen us? Would you use this time, Lord, to remind us of your goodness? Would you use this time, Lord, to not merely open our our, our minds to new information, but our hearts as well. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, that you put us in each other's presence, and we ask, Lord, you would guide us now. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let us start with a little bit of uh, background, shall we say? You'll notice that chapter 17, verse 6, has a couple of more words after uh, where I concluded our reading. I want to remind you of something that many people seem to forget. The Bible was not written in chapter and verse. Now, I realize that's shocking to some of you, maybe even a bit alarming, that Jesus didn't issue forth with John 3.16 by saying, this is John 3.16. We added those some centuries later. They were added for reference sake and for purposes of, of that. That was really bothersome to somebody in the earlier in, in our earlier services. Darren, you didn't finish verse 6. Well, don't worry, I'll pick it up at the beginning next week. Uh, this is one of the, the challenges that we have in our current methodology. Likewise, for our first question in Revelation 17.5, is mystery a part of Babylon's name? I don't know, how many of you are using NIV? Anybody? A few of us, yeah? So the NIV, they put the, the quotation marks before the word mystery, as if mystery is a part of Babylon's name. Mystery, Babylon the Great. Uh, for, most of the, uh, for most of those other translations, the quotations go after the word mystery as if it is a separate section, a separate thought, Babylon the Great standing off to itself, is then mystery a part of the name? Let's answer it this way. Grammatically speaking, perhaps. This is one of the challenges of, of the, the uh, 
current translation methodologies that we use. One of the real blessings of living in 2022 is the wide and deep number of uh, uh, manuscript evidence that we have. Go with me on this little journey, won't you? Uh, We have 6,000 pieces of the New Testament in various shapes, sizes, and forms. Some of them are about the size of a quarter. Uh, You remember those, the little metal pieces we used to use to put in phones and jukeboxes? Um, Some of them are about the size of a quarter. Others of them are as big as this this sacred desk that I'm, I'm standing in front of. Some of them are the whole New Testament. Others of them are just fragments. Some of them are written on papyrus, a natural, uh, natural occurring plant that they harvested and wove together in certain ways. Others were written on parchment, uh, an animal skin. You should have seen the looks on the kids' faces when I told them uh, about, I was teaching one of my wife's classes on ba- biblical backgrounds and told them the page they were seeing on the screen was made of animal skin. They were enthralled uh, two ways. Either that's the grossest thing I've ever seen or that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. One of the, one of the reasons I bring this up is because sometimes those manuscripts are not in absolute agreement, especially with issues related to quotation marks, periods, and other punctuation. Here is an example of just such a thing. When we get to Revelation, it gets even more interesting because we don't have nearly as many copies of Revelation as we do the rest of the New Testament. When we see this then, let us acknowledge the fact that we don't know as much as we'd like to. However, we can say this. Throughout Revelation, there are seven references to markings on the forehead. We talked about those this morning and I provided you with the references. Three that reference those who are marking of the beast and four that are references to marking of the seal. Some have said the headband that Romans used, the headband was an identifier as if you were wearing your name, sort of like they do in football practice. I don't know if you are familiar with this practice, but uh, when when practice is first getting started in in the summer camps, many times they will tape the player's name in athletic tape across the front of the helmets so uh, the coach can call them by name, usually when they're doing something wrong. Amen? If you've played ball, you know exactly what that's like. But the New International Version takes that punctuation specifically, and they move the, the quotation. The New English Bible, perhaps has it best, written on her forehead was a name with a secret meaning. This reflects the reality that this is a mystery, a mystery that we don't have a key to. I I like to read mysteries, but not nearly as much as my wife. One of her favorite books is Two-Minute Murder Mysteries. There's 50 of them in each book that she possesses, and she has several of them. I don't know whether to be afraid or encouraged um, that she reads those so frequently. Her favorite thing is to try to figure out it before she reads the solution at the end of the chapter. This is one of those times where we don't have the solution at the end of the chapter. Frightfully so. We don't know. But what we can say with absolute clarity is that it really doesn't matter. Because the, the reality is the focus is not on mystery or on Babylon the Great either one. 
The focus is on who's bringing the judgment on them. When you see passages like this, then, that we have issues sorting through and piling through and understanding, we'll say this again with a third question, when we get to these issues, instead of spending a lot of energy and effort on trying to solve that mystery that we can't solve because we don't have the key to that door, then let us surrender it to the Lord and say, hey, this is a question that you will solve for us when you bring it to pass. I say this because I've known a great many believers who really got tore up with not being able to solve one particular part or one particular mystery, and it it caused them to question, well, if I can't solve this one, then can I really understand that one or any of the other ones? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, as the saying goes. When we say mystery, then, let us reflect on the reality that mystery is a secret meaning, and we don't have the key to the secret. So is it a part of her name or not? doesn't really matter. We will embrace the notion that she is under God's authority too. And whether her name is Mystery Babylon or just plain old Babylon the Great, then we will endorse the reality that she is under God's authority and is under God's judgment as well. Now, we're going to do something a little different uh, tonight with the questions. I thought maybe instead of giving you all of them and then coming back for questions at the end, maybe it would be wiser. So uh, I think Katie stepped away for a minute. So Gary, would you, if somebody has a question, we'll take this one right now. Question about that first question? All right then, pressing on, moving ahead with eagerness and passion. Who is the great prostitute? So someone sent to me a picture, knowing that this was what we were going to discuss, of a particular politician wearing a purple dress. Here is the great prostitute, Darren. I've identified her for you. Make sure and use this on Sunday. You will notice we did not. Reality is the identity of the great prostitute is never revealed. Either John doesn't know or he chooses not to speak of who it is. However, there are some clues. Apocalyptic clues, yes, but clues just the same. Let's work through them. In Revelation 17.9, the section we'll take up next week, the apostle said the seven heads are seven heel, uh, hills on which the woman sits. Historically, scholars have connected this with the city of Rome, the city of seven hills, seven prominent hills surrounding the city of Rome. That takes us only so far, though, because quite honestly, if you've made the trip to that region, and I have not, but I've looked at it a million times on, uh, on pictures in Google Earth and things like that, there are more than seven hills. It would be easy to count some more. So it's seven named hills, but seven hills, there are seven of them. Add to that that Revelation 17.10 proclaims the seven hills represent seven kingdoms, five of which have fallen, one that is, and one that will yet be. And we're not going to preach next week's sermon tonight. But understand this. If that section is true, and it refers to Uh, Rome, historical Rome that is, 
then this reality means that the great prostitute cannot refer exclusively to Rome. In other words, when she fell in the 6th century and is no more, Scripture doesn't fall apart because the, the concluding element is lost. Rome is emblematic. It represents something else. It doesn't mean we have to live in fear that Rome will go away. Rather, that Rome and its power will be too much. John adds in 1715, the great prostitute will have great worldwide influence over people and nations. In Revelation 17, 10 to 14, leading up to that, a series of eight and then ten kings will affiliate with the beast. The great prostitute will have control over them, and they will turn on her and destroy her. Herein lies some clues. Let's start with that first sentence in that second bullet. The great prostitute will have great worldwide influence over people and nations. Consider with me how communication has changed in the last 200 years. The idea of a worldwide event in, say, 1820 would have been very difficult. Something that everyone in the world would know about and could find information about quickly. Now, it's commonplace. Take, for example, the bridge in Crimea that was blown up this week. The bridge that connected Russia to Crimea. You might say, well, I didn't hear about that. Oh, but it's been a lot of the news. The idea that on the other side of the world, we can learn about something through visual evidence, through uh, the, 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 the film that is sent to us, through people on the ground reporting through their blogs and social media. Those kind of things have shrunk our world that's what makes Revelation 17, 15 possible. One, the great prostitute having the capacity to influence people in worldwide fashion. Likewise, in the verses leading up to that, a series of eight and then ten kings who affiliate with the beast. I've known some people who have done detailed charts, and God bless them, I don't blame them. There's nothing wrong with doing a historical study to try to evaluate that, but they've tried to associate these kings and these rulers into those slots. Can I warn you, friends? It doesn't mean Scripture can't be interpreted, but it means that we probably should let Scripture interpret itself rather than trying to interpret it for Scripture. I've known some, and God bless them, who have come to the Lord and said, here's the solution to the problem you presented to us. Wait a minute. Wait. wait. Um, the Lord doesn't need our help. So rather than try to figure out who these are, let us just take what we have, that these kings will affiliate with the beast, with the prostitute, and then they will turn on them and destroy them. So then, who exactly is this great prostitute? Can she be Rome? Oh, yes, but not exclusively. I want to say three things about this, and then we'll open it to you for questions. One, the great prostitute represented an evil world system controlled by the Antichrist during the last days before Jesus' return. That we can say conclusively. Two, the prostitute has religious connotations, spiritual adultery specifically. But she has set her focus on opposition to God 
and is, in fact, the emblem of it. That we can say conclusively about who the great prostitute is. Three, we may not be able to identify who she is, but we will indeed know her by her fruits. That we can say conclusively. Now, I, I know there will probably be some who say, but that's not quite enough, Darren. We'd like to know more. To that, I say, wouldn't we all? There are a great many questions that you've heard me say, we just don't have enough information. And quite frankly, I think John didn't have enough. He told us what he saw and what he was allowed to write down, but it doesn't mean that he knew everything, at least not as much as, he, as we might have wanted him to know. Questions about that question, about the great prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> Are you asking me? So, so, yes, Bill's question is a good one. Should we just leave this in the hands of the Lord and, and let that question go unanswered? Uh, I don't think there's any harm, Bill, in... Uh, trying to evaluate and understand who it might be. Uh, so I think the, the, where, where the challenge comes is like this, this dear brother uh, who sent me this picture this week, uh, equating their political opponents with the great prostitute. Because you know what? The street runs the other way too. Somebody on the other side of the street could do the same thing. This is why I think it's dangerous to mix politics and church. Uh, but when we see the great prostitute, I don't think we'll have trouble knowing her. Well, I think if we... Uh, uh, Vita's question is, wouldn't it scare us if we knew who she was? Probably. Furthermore, if we knew that she had to arrive before the return of Christ, and we do know that, then we could always say, well, she isn't here yet, so we have plenty of time. We don't have to repent. We don't have to get our lives right. We don't have to get our, 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 our house in order, spiritually speaking, because the great prostitute hasn't arrived. We've got plenty of time. We don't know. All right, someone else? One other thing that I failed to mention this morning, um, the concept of her uh, wearing these jewels and wearing uh, this purple and scarlet, it has caused some uh, in some uh, branches of Christianity to suggest that this ought not be uh, to avoid connecting us with the great prostitute of Revelation 17, we ought never wear purple or scarlet. We ought never wear jewelry. And uh, we ought to do the opposite of what she's done. We should never drink from a golden cup. I understand the energy uh, expended that direction. 
and I don't fault anyone for trying to go as far the other direction as you can, but I don't know that there's any harm uh, in wearing purple or wearing jewelry. Uh, I think that the, the harm is when we take her example, not just in attire, but in why she's wearing it. These are symbols of her abject rejection of God and his rightful place of authority in her life, in, in, in the life of those around her. She is the symbol of God's rebellion against God. That is the essence of why she's wearing these. It's not just merely uh, to be glitzy and glamorous. It is to uh, demonstrate that she doesn't need God because she's self-sufficient. Hmm. That's the bigger danger for us in America, isn't it? Self-sufficiency. Well, if I'm not careful, we'll get in trouble. Uh, how about we press on to the next question? <clears throat> this one is technically from later, but it's popped up enough times that I wanted to stop here and just take a walk through this because it's going to come up a lot in chapter 18 and then again in chapter 20. What and or who are Gog and Magog? Let's start historically speaking. Historically, Magog was the grandson of Noah. You can find him in Genesis chapter 10. His descendants settled in the far northern reaches of Israel, likely in Europe and northern Asia. The term Magog has come to mean northern barbarians who are skilled warriors. You'll find them in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's where it's referenced most clearly. Likewise, historically, Gog is of the tribe of Reuben and is the father of Shammai. You find him in 1 Chronicles 5, 4. His name means roof or covering. And like Magog, he is described as a northern tribe in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Pause for a moment and let's talk about that much. If you know the geography of the Middle East, and you, then you know that when you get to about uh, the Dead Sea, from there south is really almost... In uninhabitable. There are towns and villages through there, but they are very, uh, it's very difficult terrain. Uh, it is desert in every constant, in every sense of that word. Likewise, uh, if you move on around to the Sinai Peninsula, most of the Sinai Peninsula is mountainous. It is not easy terrain to live in, to farm, to ranch. Uh, it, is, it is regarded as land that is difficult to use. Uh, but if you go north from Israel, if you go north, then it's a very different thing. Uh, you get to the Sea of Galilee, and then north of the Sea of Galilee is the Golan Heights, and then it's into the Fertile Crescent, and then you're up into to Asia, and then you can walk over into Europe. And It's a much more hospitable territory, much more welcoming, much more um, lively. It would make perfect sense that these tribes, when they were leaving Israel, would go north, not south. Furthermore, from the Golan Heights, they would have had plenty of places to hide, plenty of places to uh, bring wrath, fire, if you will, down from the hills on those that are around them. This is 
the essence of these two tribes. Ezekiel's prophecy was regarded as fulfilled with the conflict between the Maccabees and Antiochus Epiphanes. The later invasion of the Babylonians, and perhaps even the much more later invasion of those who controlled the region after the time of Christ. Let's take these in order right quick, really quickly, shall we? The invasion of the Babylonians really should have gone first if I was writing this chronologically. It took place in about 550 B.C. That was when Nebuchadnezzar came in and rolled over the place and took them all captive. Likewise, the Maccabees and Antiochus. Antiochus was a part of the Seleucid Ptolemaic Empire. And our friend Antiochus committed what we call the abomination of desolation. He slaughtered a pig in the temple. And the Maccabees struck him down. Thus these two, and then later the after-Christ ones who controlled Israel for more than a millennia. Perhaps that is the fulfillment. But John's vision in Revelation 20, verse 8, suggests there is still yet more to come. It's not clear if this is the same Gog and Magog, or even the same geographical locations. There is surety over their purpose. Opposition to God and his people. Thus, when Gog and Magog appear in Revelation 20, verse 8 and 9, it is in a final assault on the nation of Israel. Now, is that a geographical nation of Israel? Well, uh, for those of you who were alive in 1948, when Israel was reconstituted, the prevailing opinion was yes. For those of you who were alive in 1967 for the Six Days War, the prevailing opinion was yes. For those of us who remember the, the, uh, the challenges that took place in the 2004-2005 uprising in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem, the answer is tempting to be yes. But it isn't necessarily so. This is one of those things we have to go, okay, Lord, we're going to Leave this to you. What we can say with assuredness is this. The result, whether it's a national geopolitical body or the people of God represented by the nation of Israel, the result is the same. They're destroyed. And Satan is finally, once and for all, thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. Now there's good news. You can take that home with you and celebrate it. We may not understand the intricacies of these two or how to link Revelation 20 with Ezekiel 38 and 39. But we can say that they lose and that we win. So Magog and God. So when I was in, in, in college, it was regarded as settled fact, biblically speaking, that one of them, Gog or Magog, was Russia, and the other one was China. Then it shifted some. It was still Russia, but it was now North Korea. And then it shifted again. It was still Russia, but it was now Iraq. And then it shifted again. It was Al-Qaeda. You get what I mean? The evolution of it. 
makes it really hard to identify. Instead of constantly changing our charts, how about we just leave it to the Lord and let him defeat the foe as he will? Questions you might have about this one. Did you turn off your own microphone? Yes, I did. <laughs> so, you just basically answered, I think, if we leave it to God, yes. instead of trying to make a determination of the geographical location of God and Magog, in our period in time, it will be known by God as what it was then, when it happens, right. before the rapture and Jesus comes back. Yes. So one of the challenges we have with that is uh, the temptation that we as Western thinkers uh, have for uh, exactness in our science. You know, Barry Simpson and I were talking before we started about uh, his slide rule. He has a slide rule. You think about how we use those during the moonshot days uh, and the calculations that we did using those slide rules. The, we were absolutely confident in them. Now you look back on it and you're like, that's Stone Age. No one would do that. Well, I think when we look back at how we've regarded and interpreted Gog and Magog, we'll look at it the same way. We'll look at it in the rearview mirror and say that was foolish. We should have just left it to the Lord. Someone else. All right, then, friends, let's go on to the fourth question. This is one that, that uh, I, I <clears throat> call this one for me, uh, because this one uh, interests me and perhaps no one else. Does the symbolism of historical Rome still matter today? Here's what I mean. Given that the Roman Empire fell approximately 1,500 years ago, how are we to understand prophecy like Revelation aimed at seeing Rome fall? <laughs> this is a question that um, a lot of people who wish to undermine the book of Revelation use as a weapon against it. They will say, because Rome has already fallen, Revelation means nothing. Consider, though, the prime element in Revelation, human sinfulness and God's consistent judgment. These two elements are not merely the prime movers in Revelation, although that's true too. They are the, the arc of history, if you will, toward God's righteousness and him bringing it back. Rome was far from alone in her historical immorality. In fact, I dare say, she was just in elementary school. We have graduated from college and are on our graduate studies in the United States with regard to wickedness. It still rages around us. We don't have to look far to find it. But let's go back to Rome for a minute, and I think this is really where, for me, the question becomes really significant. The issue then isn't merely that Rome was an evil place or even an evil empire. The issue is that their privileged position in international trade made it a prime exporter of immortality. Thus, their position made them guilty of a double sin, committing their own infidelity 
and then endorsing and exporting it for others. This is why the symbolism of historical Rome matters 1,500 years after she fell. Questions about that, my friends? Yeah, I didn't think I'd get anybody to take me up on that one. This last one came in a more recent conversation. And you might laugh at it, but it is one that is sincerely asked today. Is John a sexist? Reason, a reason for that is uh, they, John consistently portrays Babylon and the world itself as a prostitute. Always with feminine pronouns and uh, feminine language. Jerusalem, however, is a bride. More to the point, Christ the victor is male. These are stereotypical roles. Revelation has used all manner of them, pro and con, throughout its pages. This particular one simply, I think, reflects John's desire to communicate clearly the disparity between the two. Jesus being pure, the prostitute being impure, the bride being pure, the world being impure. Here's another element to it, and I think this is the reason I included this question. The idea of judging historical writings with modern critical elements. The concept of sexism as we understand it would have been very difficult for those in first century Israel to understand it, at least as it is understood today. Thus, don't be trapped into thinking we can use our own critical methodologies to judge historical documents or people. That sort of nowism or meism is intoxicating because guess what? We always win. We'll always find a way to come out on top. But it steals the virtue of understanding the writing in the context and era in which it was written. Here's what I mean. Not long before World War II, my grandfather, great-grandfather actually, was pastoring a small church in rural Collin County, not far from McKinney. He had the opportunity to bring electricity to the church house, something they'd never had. He had the opportunity to do so at almost no cost, and so he agreed to do it. And he strung up a light bulb to hold Sunday night church so the farmers could come if they chose to for a second dose, were they that brave. He unleashed the whirlwind by doing so. People saying, you can't do that. You make the rest of our churches look bad. We don't have electricity. Take that down, Jim. Disconnect that. Now, I don't have any records from him beyond his refusal to take it down. But when we look back at that, doesn't it seem silly? Doesn't it seem silly? Well, yes, because we have the context of our own time period. Let's move much, much more recent. 1981. I was 13 years old. My dad and I put a small window unit air conditioner in my grandmother's house in Fort Worth. It was the first time she'd ever had air conditioning. She'd used a swamp cooler. 
I know y'all remember those. Proper name is evaporative cooler. She used a swamp cooler all the while, all the while. The only way she would agree to us installing that was for my, my parents to agree to pay $25 towards her electric, electric bill every month because she was convinced that little air conditioner was going to drive her straight to the poorhouse. And we know better, don't we? We recognize it for what it is, and we, we would say to her, Grandma, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine, and we'll adapt, and we'll move ahead with it. But this is what I mean by using later methodologies to judge a, a previous event. Don't be so foolish and don't let yourself get trapped into that. Instead, rejoice that God has given us the wisdom that he does. So is John a sexist? No. He's simply communicating using the best methodologies he has based on the interpretation and the vision God has given him. All right, then. One last round for questions here. Oh, Danny. So maybe I'm just getting old, but uh, it seems I recall when I was younger that the tan horns people thought might be the common market, the European common market, the nations of the common market, and you sort of jumped over that. So is, is that still around, or is that? Oh, sure. Uh, the reason I, I didn't spend more time on the, the one world market is because it's been so discussed. Uh, it's been so widely, widely uh, portrayed. And quite frankly, uh, Scripture speaks less of it than we do. What the Bible says is there will be one world market in Revelation 13, and the beast will control it. Past that, it goes no further. If you go back to when FDR instituted Social Security numbers, people were convinced it was the mark of the beast. Likewise, for... Uh, other things, student ID numbers. Uh, I could go on, the list gets long. So using historical things to predict uh, or to decry something else is unwise. Likewise, trying to predict where something will go can lead us down dead-end paths too. So your question then is a, a valid one. It is one that uh, asks a question that we sadly can't really answer. Someone else. All right, then, my friends, I won't make you ask questions. Uh, I do want to encourage you, if you have not already signed up for the Call to Greatness uh, event, today is your last day to do so. Uh, my friend Katie can help you with that. She's right down here. Uh, we want to encourage you to be there. We have about 100 registered. Uh, it's not too late to sign up. Uh, so... I encourage you, find Katie. She's the pretty one right down here. Come and talk to her and get yourself registered. It's going to be a wonderful day. Uh, I know there are other things that you could do on Saturday, but I don't know that all of them will have as much spiritual significance as what we'll do. My prayer is that you'll join us. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. A gracious Jesus, we are grateful for what you have done for us and for what you have planned for us. I pray, Lord, that you would Grant us wisdom going forward that we would trust your word more than our interpretation of it. Help us to know, Lord Jesus, what to surrender to you and to what keep digging. But Lord, thank you that we don't have to dig because you've already seen it. 
It's all under your control. Forgive us, Lord, for believing that more study will lead us to better answers when you're all the while saying, just prepare for my return and you'll be ready. So help us to do that very thing, Jesus, to lean into your return and wait eagerly, looking to the eastern sky, hopefully, expectantly, passionately, hoping that today is the day, but ready if it isn't. So send us now out with joy, and thank you, Lord, that you've put us together as a family to walk this road. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you soon.